you. We have about uh, 300 hits a day on the on the. Really?
So we're going to try to stay away from that limit for a while, from the final concentration limit, and keep things dilute and classical, okay, until a couple of weeks from now. Does anybody have any questions about last time? Okay. Part of your homework set this week is to remember how to do Maxwell relations. Okay. So when I when I say stuff like that, it's a hint that it's probably going to come up on exam. So make sure you know how to derive a, a Maxwell relation. And today we will finish the ideal gas uh, and look at the ideal gas law, which I'm sure you learned in chemistry, PV equals NRT, something like that. Okay, all right, we're going to prove it. So, uh, so that'll, that'll be interesting to see how that, that comes out. Um, again, what's fun about this course, right, is that we start with a very small set of assumptions, and then from that we can derive pretty much the whole universe, like the whole universe, but lots of things, like the ideal gas law. And we will discuss equipartition of energy. You don't know what that means yet, but we'll explain it today. Um, this is the nice slick theorem. Entropy of mixing, this is neat. This is the reason why when you take two liquids, so if I took a two, two colors of Kool-Aid, okay, and I put them into uh, a bowl, they mix. Okay, so if I take red Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid, I will get purple Kool-Aid, and they will never unmix. It's because of the entropy of mixing. They like to, to stay mixed, and it, that's an entropy-driven process. We'll talk about Planck-black body radiation, which this is, this is fun, too, because this is why everything's glowing, okay? Everything that has a particular temperature glows or radiates based on its temperature, and this is why, uh, this is why night vision goggles work. Stefan-Boltzmann law is related to that, the Planck radiation law is related to that, and we'll talk a little bit about how you can use that to gain information about stars. I guess that's our first true application, is we will apply that stuff to stars and uh, the Big Bang. So, here we go. The ideal gas is where you stuff identical particles all into the same box, but again, we're going to do it not very tightly. We want to stay away from that quantum limit where the wave functions start to overlap and interfere. So the partition function is, we derived this last time, the partition function is Z, equals Z1 to the N, where Z1 was the partition function of a single atom inside that box. This is how that comes up all the time, atom in a box. This is love to do very simple problems. So it, did you do that in quantum mechanics yet? Your atom in a box problem? Where you put it in, a, in an infinite square well where it's trapped and so you look at, okay, good. <laughs> and you say that the wave function goes to zero at the edges of the box. So that's how we built up this partition function for the ideal gas is that uh, we took Z1, where that's the partition function of one atom in a box, to the N, where N is the number of particles. <coughs> and we saw that we overcounted. We, we looked at this last time, that if we stay in the classical regime, you're still not going to be able to tell the difference between when particle one has a particular energy and particle two has a different energy. And then you switch the particle. Since they're ideal particles, <coughs> you won't notice that I switch them, if I switch them. So we overcounted the partition function a little bit. So we had to divide by a factor of n factorial in the partition function. And uh, so there, so our, our real partition function is v equals v1 to the n over n factorial. But the reason we have to divide that out is because if you can't tell the difference in physics between two configurations, there is no difference. Okay? Can't tell, there is no difference. Do you remember what the n factorial uh, affected? We talked in class about some there were some things that this was going to matter for and some things it wasn't going to matter for. So what, what do you remember about those two things? 
what would this factor, you know, what, what quantity would I mess up if I left out that factor and what quantities would be okay?
times this factor m over 2 pi h bar squared beta to the 3n over 2. And notice that I can uh, rearrange this a little bit. Uh, the only thing that's going to matter in here are things that depend on beta. That's, that's another thing that's nice about this form. Since I'm going to take d by d beta log of z, I only care about the temperature dependence of the partition function. This log is complicated, right? And if I wrote it out in its terms, I would have a log of b to the n minus a log of n factorial plus a 3n over 2 log of m over, you know, it's complicated, right? But most of those terms don't matter. You only care about the, the temperature dependence because that formula says catch the temperature dependence. So I only care then about the term in here that goes minus 3, uh, 3n over 2 log of beta, okay? So I have one minus sign that's carried down, minus d by d beta. This minus sign came from the fact that beta was in the denominator. Okay, so I was going to get a minus 3n over 2 log of beta. Do, do you believe that stuff? Okay. Because we just simplified the heck out of that problem. That was going to be a lot of math. <laughs> okay. So we just snuck in and found the right term that we need. Now that's easy, right? You can do that with your brain tied behind your back, right? d by d beta of log beta will be 1 over beta. So the answer is 3n over 2 beta, okay? Or if I rewrite this in terms of temperature, it's 3 halves n times tau is the energy of an ideal gas. Or if you did this in a chemistry class, you would have gotten 3 halves nRT, or sometimes you use the K, 3 halves nKT. Is that a familiar formula from chemistry? Yeah, okay. So we're building up the ideal gas law. Are there any questions about how that went? Okay. Let's see. That didn't, that didn't get a star, but this is an important concept. The fact that when you have a big, free, a, a big partition function with lots of terms, when you take a derivative of the log, you only care about the one term that has the variable dependence in it. So that, that saves you hours, <laughs> okay, as far as calculating things. Now we can also look at the free energy. Free energy is a little bit simpler in that it's just minus tau log of z, okay, and I'll manipulate this a little bit first. <coughs> Our partition function was, can be written as z1 to the n over n factorial. This is minus tau times all of this, which is n log of z1. You see how that happened, right? It was log of z1 to the n. So now it's n log of z1 minus log of n factorial. I can do Stirling's approximation on the n factorial. The reason we did Stirling's approximation is because n factorial is not that easy to take derivatives of. We use Stirling's approximation. When is Stirling's approximation valid? I didn't hear it. What did you say? Come on, you were probably right. Come on, Marcos. That's large n. Hey, that's right. Large n. So, large n is when Stirling's approximation is correct. Thanks for being brave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so now the free energy is minus n tau log of m tau over 2 pi h bar squared, all of that to the 3 halves, times the v. <coughs> that was z1. Okay, all I did from here to here was I plugged in the value of z1. Okay, plus the rest of it. <coughs> now when I use Stirling's approximation here, the minus and a minus, this becomes a plus tau log of n factorial. Plug in this here for Stirling's approximation, so it's tau n log n minus tau n. Okay. Now, Stirling's approximation, you can add another couple of terms there, right, because it was just a Taylor expansion. 
So if you want to be more exact, you can add more terms there, but we're not going to bother with that. Now, okay, so there you go. That was the free energy. That's kind of complicated and yucky looking. But we can get a nice pressure out of this. So pressure is dF by dV at constant tau. Now, all we have to do <coughs> is look at that big equation for the free energy and find the volume, right? If I just want uh, dF by dV, look <coughs> in here, find the volume. Oh, there's the volume, okay? And so I'll have a, a d by dV of a log of the volume. You see how the rest of this doesn't matter? Right? Because I can rewrite that. Um, <coughs> Looking for chalk. I can I can rewrite that that big logarithm right as a, a log of oh, I can't that, but n tau over t pi a squared stuff to the three halves plus the log of v. Okay, so now when I take the derivative, right? This is a constant with respect to volume, so it does nothing. So I just pick out the term that depends on v. This will, again, keep that in mind. That will save you lots of time on homework. So I only care about that term. <coughs> d by dv log of v is 1 over v. So I get out of minus uh, tau n. There's a volume here as well. Did I make a sign error? n tau over V. If this were a chemistry class, we would call that um, PV equals nKT, okay. or PV equals nRT, depending on which unit system you're working in. And that's it. We just derived the ideal gas law. Okay. This is sort of given to you in chemistry as well at work, but now you know why. Okay. The assumptions were just that you had a collection of gas particles where you were only taking into account their kinetic energy, and they're pretty dilute and not interacting with each other. That's that's the ideal gas. And this, this comes out as PV with N tau in, in our unit system. Do you have any questions? Okay. Yes? We had an assumption of uh, identical particles. Yeah. So that's a good question. How would, you know, what would you change if you didn't use identical particles? Do you remember our, our figures last time? Of we had um, atoms of a different species in the same box, my all-time favorite figure in a textbook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so our current partition function is v equals v1 to the n over n factorial. How would the partition function change if it was? There would be no n factorial. Yeah, that's it. Other, other than that, so the partition function, if it was different particles that were not identical, would just be v1 to the n. You wouldn't even have to worry about the n factorial that we had to divide up because we overcounted. And then you take the rest of this stuff. <coughs> okay. Wouldn't be the same? I, I think it's probably going to be the same. Although, that's a good homework problem. 
3n goes right there. So the energy is number of degrees of freedom times tau over 2. So if I had something different, let me have uh, a different kind of, of system where I'm going to have a harmonic oscillator. Right? Remember, there's only two things that physicists know how to do, harmonic oscillators and Taylor expansions. So we've taken lots of Taylor expansions. Here's the harmonic oscillator. P squared over 2m plus a half m omega squared x squared. Now, if I want to use the equal partition theorem, I need to count all the squared terms. So let me say, for example, that this is a, <coughs> a one-dimensional harmonic oscillator. Okay, I'm just going to look at, at one direction in space that the atom can oscillate about. Now I get a, a p squared, it's really a px squared, okay, and an x squared. So the way I can partition goes is count both of those in the degrees of freedom. Because if I wrote down the coordinates of a single atom in a harmonic oscillator, I would have to tell you the position and the momentum. Okay. Have you done harmonic oscillator yet? In quantum mechanics? Okay, so this, this formula is not too far in the hill. Okay. <coughs> and now I count up the squared terms in this Hamiltonian for the harmonic oscillator. One, two. Why didn't I count this as three, right? Here I had a p squared over two m and I counted it as three. Why don't I count that as three? Yeah, I'm making an assumption that I have a one-dimensional harmonic oscillator. So it's really just a px in there. So two degrees of freedom times n particles. So two n degrees of freedom if I have a collection of n harmonic oscillators that are one-dimensional. <coughs> so in that case, I would count the internal energy <coughs> as u equals two n times tau over two. Okay. Are there any questions about how to do that? Count up squared terms in Hamiltonian. This is really flipped because you can now <coughs> you can take this concept and use it for more complicated molecules and count up the squared terms. Do you have a question? Um, why don't we count the n squared terms in the previous one? Right here? Yeah. <coughs> you could count that as well. So then we get sixty. Oh, there's an equal sign here. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. You're right. You could, you could count up the answer first. Yeah. Any other questions about that? Yeah. Did I miss why this is true? Like, I can... Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, did you... Is there a reason that's true? Or... Yeah. That's just so happened. Um, I did not prove it to you, so you did not miss that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <coughs> we proved it for the case of 3n, okay, and I'm telling you that it also works in other cases. But if you want to, uh, excellent question, I should be more explicit about that, about whether or not I've proved something or whether I've just extrapolated because, um, because I know it's true and if you work out all the math, you'll get the same answer. So yes, yeah, so we did not just prove this. I'm telling you the answer. And if you... Uh, but you know how to get it, right? Because we did the partition function for the case of three degrees of freedom per atom. Okay, and you would just follow those steps again. <coughs> you would write down the, uh, in fact, we're, we're going to do that in the next few slides. Okay, so uh, excellent question, though. Thanks for asking. Um, if you do this now for, um, for the harmonic oscillator, you'll find that this is true. Yeah. Great question. Any, any other comments or... Yeah. Does this relate to the variation theorem? It looks a similar form. What is the variation theorem? 
I think I have the right term. <laughs> you probably do. Maybe somebody can help me on this. But, um, what we learned in Giuliani's class about you is something in terms of the kinetic energy. Oh, very real. Very real. That's what I meant. Good. Uh, <laughs> I believe. Good. We need to play stuff the professor. I believe the virial theorem was relating the kinetic energy to the potential energy. Okay. But that's not, even right. though in similar form, that's not what's going on. That's not what this is about. Okay. Good question. Anything else before we go on? Okay. We're gonna. We're gonna. Pretty sure we're gonna show this is true here in the next slide. Good. That gets a star. This is important. Um, you know, I had a graduate class in statistical mechanics where we had this big, long problem. It was an evil problem. It was long. It was a lot of math, right? And if you forgot the equal partition theorem, you would get the wrong answer because there was just so much math involved. So, um, but if you remembered your equal partition theorem, you could go to the beginning of the problem, count the degrees of freedom, and you could check what answer you were supposed to get, right? This is one of those, those little-known tricks in theoretical physics always know the answer before you get it, right? Because if you can use a theorem to quickly tell you what the answer should be, now when you work out the math, even if you make a mistake, you'll know, okay? Right. But if you don't know the answer, right. if you don't know the answer, how do you know the answer? The, okay, yeah, how do, you, how do you get the answer when you don't know the answer already? It's hard. You have to, you know, you do the calculation, you uh, throw it away and do it again, you throw it away and do it again, okay? And you make sure that you can get the same answer several times. You have your friend check your work. I mean, when I do calculations, uh, since, since I, I do condensed matter theory, you know, I'll do a 20-page calculation. <coughs> One sign error cost me two weeks' worth of work, you know? So you just uh, you check and double-check, and you try to try to um, use use any line of reasoning you can to check your final answer. So you don't check with uh, experiment or well, okay, that's a great question. Of course I do. I check with experimental data. But, um, right, and that's, that's kind of the two branches of physics right now. Experimentalists are in the lab measuring things. They find out the way the world is, right? And then I'm a theorist, so I just sit in my office doing math, and I find out the way the world should be, right? And then we talk, and they rarely agree, and so we argue about it, and that's <laughs> You could say we fight. I prefer to say we have uh, collegial discussions. Um, but yeah, you, you do both. And of course, you know, the experimentalists will say, well, you made a sign error somewhere, right? And I'll say, oh yeah, well, your, your uh, vacuum pump system was not clean enough. You know, that's why it's not. <laughs> so, it's an iterative process. Science is an iterative process. No, 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 no. It, it, it depends. <laughs> it depends. If they're getting data that looks like my theory, I love them. <laughs> If they're getting data, that's right. But this is this is how many people want to go to graduate school in, in physics or thinking about it. Okay, this right here, our discussion that we just had, is basically how to choose whether you want to do experiment or theory. Because what will hold up a theorist for a couple of weeks is a minus sign error or a factor of two error in my calculations, right? So I spend a lot of time going back over my equations, trying to track down stray minus signs and stray factors of two be surprised how much time I spent doing that, okay? But I have other collaborators <coughs> who check our calculations together. Experimentalists are checking for uh, leaks in their vacuum pump system. <laughs> so, 
Choose your pain in graduate school. Would you rather spend two weeks tracking down a minus sign error and 20 pages of equations, or would you rather spend two weeks tracking down a very tiny leak in your vacuum pump system? That is, should you be a serious or an experimentalist? And if you like tracking down semicolons in code, if you would like to spend two weeks tracking down semicolons in code, if that's your bag, you should be a computational physicist. <laughs> No, do you go to grad school for experimental or is it here? You get into grad school first and then you make the decision later. No, for computational. Huh? For computational. Computational, that's kind of a subset of theory. There's analytical theory and computational theory. Did you? Yeah, you're cynical in that? All right. That's you, computation. If you like tracking down leaks in vacuum pumps, though, be an experimental physicist. <laughs> there are much better reasons to go to graduate school, by the way, if you like physics. That's the best reason to go to graduate school. Because <laughs> you better really like it, right, if you're going to spend two weeks tracking down minus signs and vacuum pumping. So that's good. That's good that we had a good digression there because we're switching gears now. <coughs> we're going to talk about the entropy of mixing. <laughs> so this is that concept that if I pour into a bowl red Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid, I'm going to get purple Kool-Aid and they will never unmix, okay? So it turns out that that's an entropy-driven process. So let, let's see how we could figure that out. I can actually, uh, so let me set up a simplified problem, okay? This is what physicists do. We set up simplified problems so we know part of the reason for doing that is that we can solve the simple problems, but a, a better reason for doing that is when you set up really simple problems, you know exactly what assumptions go in, and therefore you know exactly which parts of your conclusions are due to which assumptions. So let's set up a simple model where we're going to have an, an alloy where I'll have two species in the alloy, okay, maybe making bronze or something, I think that's tin and copper. Uh, so I'll have atom one, atom two, we're labeling these here A and B. So I've kind of written down here a particular pattern that might pop up in an alloy. A, A, B, B, A, B, A, 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 B, B, A, A, B, you know, so on, okay? So some configuration of I'm going to have some lattice structure to the alloy that I'm thinking about, but on any given lattice site, there could be one atom or the other, okay? So in that sense, it's an alloy. And uh, when you, in the process of, of forming alloys, Okay, if I formed an alloy, an alloy and I go to low enough temperature, the atoms will <coughs> come out. But if I, let's say that I have an alloy and I take it close to but not at its melting temperature, if I melt it, I'm going to have to take into account more degrees of freedom. But there are, there is a certain energy cost to switching two atoms, okay? And if I'm at an intermediate temperature range, that switching can happen. And that's part of the process we need to take into account if we want to think of that alloy as being in thermal equilibrium, it will have atoms switching sites. There's an energy cost, right, but there's temperature in the system, so there's a finite probability that those switches will happen. Okay, they're less likely at low, at low temperature. They're more likely if you raise the temperature, but let's not raise the temperature so much that we melt the alloy and get a big puddle. Okay. So, so then on every site, I can say there's one atom A or an atom B, the, the total uh, multiplicity function is then n factorial divided by n a factorial divided by n b factorial, which is basically to say, right, this is n choose, uh, choose n a, right? <coughs> so on the first side, I have, you know, n factorial ways I could choose these things, right? 
but then I'm going to divide out by Na and Nb factorial. So from the entropy of, uh, sorry, from the multiplicity function, we can get the entropy. Entropy is just the log of the multiplicity, okay? So if, if the multiplicity was n factorial divided by Na factorial divided by Nb factorial, this becomes entropy is log of n factorial minus log of Na factorial, which I've rewritten as n minus Nb, minus log of Nb factorial. And what do you do when you get to this point in the problem? You use Stirling's approximation, right? Anytime you see a log of n factorial, just throw in Stirling's approximation, okay? It'll make your life easier. And Stirling's approximation is good when we have many particles. So I'm going to apply Stirling's approximation, and I'll get here from the log of n factorial, I get n log n minus n. Log of n minus nb factorial, I get the n minus b log of n minus b plus n minus b, okay? From here, from log of nb factorial, actually minus log of nb factorial, I get a minus nb log nb plus nb. All I did was plug in the first two terms of Sterling everywhere. Now, now we gather terms. Um, that's a lot of terms together. Um, okay. First of all, let's let's do this first. Let's cancel some n. So nb minus nb. That's going to cancel. Here's an n, a minus n. Those are going to cancel. So that was nice. Okay, all the ends just canceled out. So we we'll only have to worry about logs at this point. So I have uh, nb log nb. That's going to come here, nb log nb. I have here a log of n, but it's with an opposite sign. So that comes up as a minus log of n. This was an n in front. This is an nb in front. So there's something left over. Okay, so this this minus nb here, I have to re-add in over here. Does that make sense? Okay. So now I have terms left over in terms of n minus nb log of stuff. Okay. So this is n minus nb here. I'll get another log of n there. So this factor inside here, log of 1 minus nb over n, came from log of n minus nb divided by n. So n minus nb divided by n is 1 minus nb over n. That was just a bunch of, of algebraic ma manipulation. But that is the entropy of mixing, that, that formula. Okay. So all we did was write down the multiplicity, use Stirling's approximation, which is to say take a Taylor expansion, right? And now I would like to re-express this in terms of the concentration of B atoms. So the concentration of B atoms I can define as the number of B atoms divided by N. Okay, so concentration is a percentage, thinking of those first. So if I have half the atoms or nb atoms, this concentration will be a half. That's all I need. So now I can plug in this x, the concentration, into the entropy. So every time I see an nb over n, put in an x. nb over n, put in an x. So this is sigma is minus n uh, times 1 minus x, log of 1 minus x plus x log x. The x log x was easy, right? Um, <coughs> there's an nb, and so I multiplied and divided by n. And then nb over n became x. Do you believe that part? Okay. Here, the 1 minus x is a little bit more tricky. Um, again, I multiply and divide by n. Okay. So if I multiply and divide by n here, I get an n over n is 1. nb over n is, one, is, is x. Okay. 
It's just a substitution, but that's kind of a nicer formula. Now, okay, let's start that formula. We now have a formula in terms of concentration. What are the bounds on concentration the lowest the concentration can be? Numerically. Zero, okay. What's the highest the concentration of B atoms can be? One, okay. So X is bounded by zero and one. So if X is bounded by zero and one, that means that here, for example, when I take log of X, it's a number between zero and one, okay. Is, is log of X positive or negative in that regime? Okay, so log of a small number, less than one, is negative. So this is overall negative, but here's a minus sign. So that term is overall positive, okay? What about log of one minus x? <coughs> positive or negative? Okay, log of one minus x is also negative because x is between one and zero. One minus x is also between one and zero. So that's the log of a small number, which is overall negative times the minus sign is positive. So this is nice, okay? The entropy due to mixing is always positive. What do you know about entropy? If I set a system loose, right, what do you, what do you know about how entropy can change in that system? It's going to be what? Okay, so the entropy will either increase or stay the same. And in this case, when I mix red Kool-Aid with blue Kool-Aid, be sure and try this at home. Works with different flavors of soda, too. Both them in the same, okay. They'll mix. It's an entropy-driven process. Because the entropy of mixing is always positive. So, the way for two systems in contact like that that can exchange particles, the way for them to maximize their entropy is to exchange particles a lot. Okay, and so they'll just mix together. Question? Oh, if they have different density. Good. Question? Okay, that's, a, that's an excellent question. What do, you, what do you expect to happen? When Not to mix. Or either mix and then unmix. Time. What do you expect the final state to look like if one has a higher density? Uh, one on top and one on Okay. Two layers. Yeah. All right. What if they are, <coughs> um, what, if, what if the two are mixable? Let's do, okay, because let's, let's do the case where I can do blue Kool-Aid and red Kool-Aid, but the red Kool-Aid is somehow heavier. Ah, I'm going to make the red this again. I'm going to make the red Kool-Aid with deuterated water. Do you know what this is? <laughs> deuterated water. Okay, instead of eight. What? What? We're going to have heavy Kool-Aid. Please don't drink it. It would be very bad for you. So, I'm going to make the red Kool-Aid out of D2O, two deuterium atoms and an oxygen atom. Okay, where deuterium acts electronically just like hydrogen. It's just heavier. It has an extra neutron. Okay, so um, let's do that. Do you know why drinking deuterated Kool-Aid would kill you? And you should never do it. That could be. That's probably also true. There's another sort of. <laughs> there's another sort of more morbid reason. <laughs> why could you not drink deuterated Kool-Aid? Let go of the neutrons, which will then go through us? I don't know. Nah, I don't. I don't think so. That would also be bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I 
Do you have you seen in chemistry uh, how how chemical reaction rates depend on the masses of how heavy the atom is? Have you seen that that concept? Okay. So you, the the chemical reactions that happen in your body that keep you alive happen at a certain rate. And if you slow those chemical processes down, you <coughs> will unfortunately die a slow death. Now, if you had replaced your water in your body with deuterated water, all of your chemical reactions would slow down because those water molecules are heavier. Okay, and heavier, uh, heavier chemicals have longer reaction times. So just processes would just slow down. They wouldn't stop entirely, they'd just slow down. It'd be terrible, so don't do it. See, the reason I care about this is because I wanted to know how to make, um, I like skiing. Does anyone like skiing? Okay. So I wanted to know how I could make snow in warmer weather. Okay. So how do you make snow in warmer weather? So let me think about how ice melts, right? So ice is held together by chemical bonds, okay? And the reason that ice melts, <coughs> the reason that any, <coughs> excuse me, solid melts, is that as I raise the temperature on the atomic structure, the atoms vibrate back and forth. When they vibrate too much, they melt, okay? Now you can imagine that vibrations depend on p squared over 2m, okay, that kind of energy. And so the mass is involved, okay? So if I have atoms with a heavier mass, they melt at a higher temperature. See where I'm going? Okay. All right. So if I made snow crystals out of deuterated water, they have a higher melting temperature, and we could go skiing longer. Would be awesome. The problem is the environmental impact <laughs> of when the snow melts, <laughs> and now you have deuterated water running into the environment. Well, you could just put it in a tarp. Yeah, that's right. You need a huge tarp, and you would need a you know, if you do make one of these these bubble fields, it's very it would be such a mess. Yeah, you want to get Oh, oh, I don't know. I'm sorry, I didn't do the calculation for, for how much it would change. <laughs> like you get a factor of like point one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean. If it went harder than it ever gets harder, it would come faster. That is true. No, it's not quite. That's a good point. That's a good point. Then, yeah, you have a snow that never melted. Boy, that'd be interesting. Well, it's not that big because basically, here's a way to kind of estimate it really quickly. If you look at the percentage change of the mass of the water molecule, that will give you some idea of the percentage change of the mass of the temperature change. Okay, because the temperature will go like energy. Um, I'm making this up, but uh, <laughs> off the top of my head. But you can use the Minsko analysis like this to get you pretty close to answers. So the energy of the vibrations has to go has to go like c squared over 2m. So that energy <coughs> will will be related linearly to the temperature because I can put them in the same unit. Okay. So the temperature change is also going to go like 1 over m. So if I look at the percentage change of 1 over m, which I took the, uh, I think I went from 18 to 20 as far as atomic mass units. So, you know, like a, so like a, it's like a 10% change. So maybe a 10% change in temperature. But then you have to write that to absolute zero. So 10% change with respect to absolute zero. That's my rough estimate, talking off the top of my head. So it would be fun. You could extend your skiing season, but you would kill all the fish in the area. And we don't. How much, like, any water do you have to ingest? Because, like, 
I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I would stay away from it myself. Please don't drink heavy water. Because <laughs> obviously there's natural concentrations in that We're all still here. All right, now where were we? You asked the question <laughs> that led to the deuterated Kool-Aid, which was what if the two uh, species had different masses and so one had a higher density and tended to sink? Okay, so let's do that. Let's think about deuterated Kool-Aid. Now you know not to drink itself. <laughs> okay, deuterated red Kool-Aid and regular blue Kool-Aid, and you probably expect some sort of, of layering, but they can mix, right? So you'll just have a competition between those two processes. That would be a complicated problem, but it's a good problem. You would add yeah. gravity in, right? So you would have the energy level of every <coughs> atom would depend on its um, relative gravitational position, and then that would scale like MGH. So there's your mass that would come in. You'd have to include gravity and the entropy of mixing. And you could, this is giving me great ideas for the test, you could calculate uh, the, the density change as a function of height based on that. And you can use, okay, this actually, this, is, this comes up in uh, the atmosphere, layers of the atmosphere. And so if you do uh, similar calculations for, um, for the atmosphere, you know, we have uh, oxygen and nitrogen and, and carbon dioxide, and those all have different weights. So their relative concentrations differ as you go up in the atmosphere. Um, yeah. Good question. Other questions? Okay. All right. So the entropy of mixing is always positive, which means that the free energy then goes down as we mix, right? since entropy and, and free energy are, that's why we put to the free energy. It was the energy that always minimized. If the, max, if the entropy tends to maximize. Any, any questions, other questions about that? So, there we go, mix or stay apart. <coughs> um, what have I put in here? I have put in interaction energy. I don't know what that slide's about. We're going to skip that. <laughs> did, I, did I mention that I was up until 5.30 a.m. writing a grant proposal? So uh, <coughs> these are last year's notes. <laughs> and I reviewed them really quick before class. So ask me about that slide next week, and I will try to, to remember that when I've had more sleep. Small concentrations of impurities. Uh, here we go. Interaction energies of, of two different things. That's what we left out, right? We left out... Um, interaction energy, which is fine for some things, but if you want to think about things being sticky and being able to stick onto each other and pop off and that sort of thing, then you have to worry about um, interaction energies. where, for example, um, so what does the interaction energy mean? That's the next thing you should take into account. A next to A, if they interact with each other, which they should because they're in a solid, and that's why they're going to stick together, because that's energetically favorable. So the, the energy of the chemical bond A to A will have a certain energy. The energy of the chemical bond B to B will have a certain energy. That's an interaction energy. The energy of the chemical bond A to B will have a certain energy. That's an interaction energy. So that's, that's what we've left out so far. And that will affect uh, the, the total energies of these things. Okay. So if we're looking, you know, small concentrations, you could say that your energy change is not all that big, okay, given that I'm going to add in 
um, a little bit of mixing, and when A is next to B, that's going to change the energy a little bit. Okay. Um, I'm going to assume here that the energy of A next to A is roughly the same as the energy of B next to B, but what I'd like to know is how does it matter that maybe maybe one atom really likes to be next to the other atom or doesn't like to be next to the other atom, that sort of thing. Okay. So here's your, your interaction energy then, as I would just look at the concentration. If it's dilute, let's say that I have mostly A atoms and I add a small concentration of B atoms, okay, then I can scale the uh, I can scale the total energy change by the number of those B atoms that are hanging around. Okay. If I get too many, I'll have to start counting the number of bonds <coughs> that are broken in that sort of thing. So there's a scaling of the interaction energy. We should take a break. Let's take a 10-minute uh, break. Okay? So 2.25, come back at 2.35. Okay, let's get, let's get started again. Okay, I just skipped a couple of slides. We're gonna, we'll finish entropy of mixing next time. But I want to get through radiation today because there's some really important concepts in here. <coughs> so radiation, and by this I mean Planck's black body radiation. This is the concept that everything glows according to its temperature. So I'm radiating because I'm around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, so I'm radiating photons off based on my temperature. And if I was colder, I would radiate a different set of photons. If I was hotter, I would radiate a different set. So the basic concept is that hot things, okay, the hotter it is, the brighter it glows, and it glows at higher frequencies. Cool things glow dimmer. They don't emit as many photons. And they glow at lower frequencies. Okay? So why can't you see my glowing? Hmm? Okay. Too low in what? Cool and heartless. No.
coiled tight, and actually if you look at those things really closely, they're coiled tight and the coil is coiled, they're trying to really pack a good density in there. And then you run current back and forth, <coughs> and you heat up the wire, <coughs> and the wire gets hot enough that it starts glowing, and it peaks somewhere in the mi middle of the visible range. So you get a lot of frequencies that you can see it, so you see this white light. Uh, so hot things glow, and uh, hot things glow brighter at higher frequencies, cool things glow dimmer at lower frequencies. So here's the funny thing. Let's say that you saw a star. You see two stars. One star is red. One star is bluish. Which one's hotter? I'm sorry? Oh, excellent question. Let's say that they are not moving relative to us. Good question. Did you have to worry about red too? What about distance? Distance from us, though. We'll get into that. But let's say that they're both distance, they're not moving away from us or towards us. You have a red star and a blue star, which one's hotter? Blue. blue. Isn't that just opposite from how everything's right? You go to a sink and they have the red knob be the hot and the blue knob be the cold. They were wrong. <laughs> Sorry. So, <coughs> in, in, in real physics, uh, it's the blue stuff that's hotter and the red stuff is cooler. And yes, you should avoid things that are glowing purple. <laughs> they are really hot. <laughs> So hot things radiate photons, and this is exactly how incandescent light bulbs work. Uh, you run, you run current back and forth through that loop of wire. It's got a finite resistance, and it heats up because you're running that current through it. Heat the filament. It gives off a characteristic spectrum of photons, and it's just set by its temperature. You ran the current back and forth through the little coiled wire in the incandescent light bulb. It heated it up, and so the heat itself is what's causing it to give off photons. And what we'll see is that if we made a plot, for example, if we put a spectrum analyzer on the uh, light bulb and we analyze for what frequency, you know, at what frequency am I getting what intensity, we'd see a pretty smooth distribution, okay? That's Planck's black body radiation is that nice smooth distribution based on temperature. And the peak frequency will tell you the temperature. So if you can measure that and measure that curve, you'd know the temperature. It will turn out as well that the, the height of the curve is also directly related to temperature. So <coughs> you can also uh, extrapolate out how bright the object should be as well. <coughs> Excuse me. So star spectra, this is kind of fun. You know, we look up into the sky and, you know, just with your eye or with a telescope, you just kind of feel a white dot. Some of the white dots might look a little redder, some of them might look a little bluer. But basically, you see a white dot. But they're pretty, you know, if you put a spectrum analyzer on the starlight that's coming out, it's more complicated than that. So you'll see a background distribution of intensity versus frequency that has to do with basically what's the temperature of the star. Now here I've drawn little dips. And actually, I put down here a real star spectrum. Here's a real star spectrum showing that you get these kind of dim bits once in a while. And I've plotted that as, you know, a drop in the intensity, a drop in the intensity at specific frequencies. So what do you think that's due to? Well, no. what do you think about now? The clouds? Yeah. Um, that's, got, that, that's probably part of it. You get a little bit of absorption from the atmosphere. <coughs> what about telescopes in outer space? Mm -hmm. It depends on the composition of the star and the things that are in the corona around that and what they're absorbing. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. So both of will, these will go on. So you'll get a little bit of, of they're called absorption lines, because the star 
<coughs> on the outer shell of the star, there'll be some atoms that have specific uh, energy levels to the atoms, and they will absorb particular colors, basically. So you get little dips in the spectrum. Sometimes things get a little bit weird, and you'll get an emission line. Um, but either way, you can actually use all of that to identify what the atoms are in a star. So if you ever wondered how in the heck we get so much information about stars, we can just analyze the spectrum. Look at the overall peak, and that'll tell you the temperature. It'll also tell you what brightness it should be. And then based on these spectral lines, after you've done a lot of calculations, or had your graduate students do a lot of calculations, um, you can tell what atoms are in the star. So you can actually tell the composition, the temperature, the brightness, and all that stuff. <coughs> that is the sun. And that's just the visible range. Okay, I just wanted to give you a sense of how much data we get out of starlight. You know, the sun's pretty close, so we can get really detailed data about the sun. Um, so this spectrum, you know, we're going from red to blue, but it goes on into the, you know, the ultraviolet and the infrared with all those spectral lines. <coughs> Some of them are kind of smeary, okay? Most of them are pretty sharp. So if you do a lot of calculations, <laughs> you can figure out what all those spectral lines are and which atoms are present. Uh, do you think there is one spectral line per star, per, per atom, or a few, or? Yeah, because atoms have several energy levels. So for every possible atomic transition um, that, that's available, you'll see a little uh, spectral line show up. By the way, these are not all identified. So if you were thinking about going into graduate school as an astronomer, that's, that's one problem is there are, there are spectral lines in the spectrum of the sun that we haven't identified yet. Um, so do lots of calculations and you can figure them out. <coughs> so the way this basically works, <coughs> to set up the calculations, what we'd like to know is I want a collection of photons, and I want the collection of photons to be at a particular temperature in thermal equilibrium, and then I can calculate what the spectrum of those photons should be given that they're in thermal equilibrium. So, <coughs> obviously, the way to set this calculation up is to put the photons in a box, right? That's what you want to do. Put the thing in a box. Because a box has nice boundary conditions, they're flat, you know, and I can do the math. And then, then at the end of the day, we'll take the box size to infinity, okay? And it won't, won't matter that we stuck it all in a box. So, I want to think about electromagnetic radiation in thermal equilibrium. We always stick things in a box first. And when I do this, now I know exactly how the energy of the photons are quantized. So <coughs> this is a bit like one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. If I have one photon in the box, okay, it'll have a, a cross section to its um, electric field, okay, that depends on the boundary conditions of the box. So here, for example, I've set a sine wave in there. Okay, that can be one photon mode. And a single photon in here, <coughs> this is plotting out distance inside the box, these are the edges of the box, and E is the electric field strength. <coughs> so for a localized, for a photon uh, mode that's trapped inside the box, it has this kind of, uh, you know, it looks very much like your quantum mechanical wave function. So you've taken, you've taken a and M. Okay, so you'll see that there are <coughs> boundary conditions that you have to have the electric field and the magnetic field satisfy uh, if you look at radiation in a cavity, for example. So here I'm taking use of these boundary conditions. Now, if I plotted out, for example, one photon occupying the lowest energy mode, I could put two photons in that mode. 
Okay? So if I put two photons in that mode, the way that that translates is that then the electric field that I read in the meter would be stronger in that mode. So it's just like the wave gets a little bit larger. If I put in more photons in that mode, then this amplitude will go up and so on. Okay? So number of photons in the mode has to do with the strength of the electric field. Here is a photon, <coughs> profile of a photon in a different mode. This is a higher energy mode. Okay? Notice I drew it blue because it's higher energy. Okay? So this one, for example, has a node, <coughs> and then when I put two photons in that mode, the amplitude will go up, but the node structure won't change. <coughs> Excuse me. Are there any questions about that? <coughs> So, how, you know, how does it equilibrate, all right? Um, I have to make some assumptions here <coughs> about how the photon, I can actually call this a gaseous photon, how the gaseous photon would know what temperature it should be. Okay, how does it know what temperature it should be? I take a box, and I'm going to have the box at a particular temperature. That's about all I can control here. <coughs> okay, I'm going to take a metallic box, so I know what the boundary condition should be. Hold it at, you know, 300 Kelvin. How do the photons know what the temperature is? Who tells them? Yeah, okay. So there's atoms in the box. The atoms of the box. Atoms of the box. Oh, yeah, right. That's right. We want a vacuum inside the box. So the atoms that make up the size of the box are at a particular temperature. And then what? They and the photons. Okay, because of their flat body radiation. So <coughs> what will happen is that <coughs> the atoms and the edges of the box can absorb uh, photons, they can emit photons, they can also, um, so that's one way that they can equilibrate, <coughs> to jiggle a little bit, and because they're dipole moments, the dipole moments jiggle a little bit, they'll get some, some radiation that way. So these, are, I just wanted you to, to be aware of the microscopic processes. It doesn't actually matter what the microscopic processes are as long as it equilibrates. But there is a mechanism there, state equilibration, okay, which is that uh, ex you know, excited atoms absorb photons and get more excited, get more excited as they absorb more, photo more photons. <coughs> they can release those as well. <coughs> and then the atoms, and they're excited, the atoms will have a, a particular um, thermal distribution of whether or not they're in excited state or whether or not they're wiggling and, and doing dipole radiation. So this kind of, of exchange, right, between the atoms and the photons in the box is one of the equilibration mechanisms, okay, that will let that photon, you can call it a photon gas, that will let the photon gas equilibrate. <coughs> now, <coughs> here's something I should have asked you a couple of slides ago. Here, why was it okay to stick two photons in that mode? Am I allowed to do that? Can I stick two photons in the same exact quantum orbital? Yes. Yeah. Okay, why is that? Huh? Okay. All right. They are they are bosons. And do you, do you remember what that had to do with it? Uh, I mean, okay. what? Anti-symmetric. Uh, what do you mean? Okay. All right. That's the statistics theorem. That's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, so, so yeah, so what is the difference between bosons and fermions, quantum mechanically? Sorry? Okay, all right. 
So the Pauli exclusion principle is obeyed by fermions, those you know, electrons. This is why in a hydrogen atom you can't have three electrons in the 1s state. You can put an up electron in the 1s state and then a down electron, which is technically different, in the 1s state, and then you're done. Now when you add a third electron, it needs to go into a different energy level because no two fermions can occupy the exact same quantum state at the same time. That's, this is why matter doesn't come <coughs> together. Okay. Photons aren't like that. Photons are bosons. And so they can occupy the same, um, they can occupy the exact same quantum state. No, <coughs> all, all bosons can do that. So bosons, bosons like each other, they can go into the same state. Fermions are antisocial, won't do that. Do you, do you know how to count this? Do you, do you know why we classify the photon as a boson? How, how would I have known that? Yeah, that's right. You look at the spin of the particle. So electrons have uh, half integer spin. They carry a spin a half. Anything that has half integer spin is a fermion. Anything that has integral spin, what's the spin of a photon? Nothing. <laughs> so nothing. Okay, so these guys are bosons. <coughs> any, any questions about that? I just didn't want to gloss that over. Okay, we, we can put many photons in the same mode because they're bosons and that's okay. Okay, so they're going to equilibrate with a box. I'd like to know, I'd like to do statistical mechanics on the photons. Okay, they have an equilibration mechanism. I'm going to hold the box at a particular temperature. So what percentage of photons should I expect in what energy level? That's, that's what I'd like to know here. Okay and we can derive that. So the partition function, uh, first, okay, let me be careful here. First I'm going to start with one photon mode. I just want to look at one photon mode. What's the average occupancy of that one photon mode given a particular temperature? We'll look at that partition function first, the partition function of one mode, then we'll build up the rest of the box, okay, and the rest of the photon mode. So without telling you exactly which photon mode I'm worried about, because this will work for every photon mode, let me just say that I have a photon mode that has, for example, you know, maybe it's this one, and there's a particular energy associated with it. Okay? So the energy will be h bar omega, where omega has to do with the frequency of the photon mode. This one here, I should have used a different omega, because you know, this, this excited photon here is at a higher energy. It will have a different frequency and a different energy. So every photon mode had it, has its own frequency, its own energy. So the energy I can write for each photon mode is h bar omega. And uh, I want to build up the partition function as the sum of e to the minus energy over tau. Okay. So the energy associated with the different occupancies of the photon mode. We've got one photon mode. If there's no photon in the photon mode, we're going to say that the energy is zero. So that'll give me a term in the partition function, e to the zero is one. If there's one photon mode, Sorry, there's one photon in the mode. Okay, I'm going to say that's energy h bar omega. That'll be the term where s is 1 and it becomes e to the minus h bar omega over tau. If there's two photons in the mode, s will be 2, and this is e to the minus 2 h bar omega over tau, because that's the energy of that state. So it's the sum of all those factors. Okay, so this is the sum over all states for the single photon mode, e to the minus s h bar omega over tau, where s is integer and runs from zero to infinity. Zero being no photons are in the mode. One photon, s equals one and one photon, s equals two is two photons, and so on. What would that sum look like if I had had fermions? I have bosons, so I just summed from zero to infinity. 
Well, how would it change if it were uh, fermions? Can I, if, if they spin fermions, can I put two fermions in the same mode? Hmm. Because there's, because there's, so why do you see a step function? Well, I see where you're going, but. Well, if you, they can't occupy the same mode, they can't have a continuous function. Okay. Like over all the particles. So you okay. have to have something that comes for a different particle. Like if, maybe if you counted, like the one I say <coughs> as like one of them, you could count from like zero to two, and then you have to have something to count for the next. Okay. Okay, so I have a lot less things available, right? If I had fermions, um, oh, that's good. Why did you say zero to two? Well, because Okay, good. Right, so you have to count the spins, right? So if these guys were fermions, I could put one in, and then I could put, that's it. I pretty much have zero or one in every state. That's how I count the state. If I, if I count the state as also including spin, mm -hmm. then for every quantum state of a fermion, it's either occupied or unoccupied. And so fermion partition functions, and we'll see this in a, in a couple weeks, are really simple. They have two terms. <laughs> the unoccupied plus the occupied term. Okay? But this is boson, so the sum goes to infinity. Had it been fermions, this would be sum over s equals 0 to 1. Really boring. But bosons are sum of s equals 0 to infinity. And here, okay, so s is the number of photons in the mode. <coughs> and do uh, you see how I can do this? I rearrange things here. So that rather than e to the minus s h bar omega over tau, I have e to the minus h bar omega over tau. All of that's the s, right? I just pulled out the s. I can do that with an exponential, right? E to the minus s, okay? It's e to the whatever it was. All of that's the s. And the reason I did that is because I want you to recognize this. This is a sum from zero to infinity of something to the s, okay? So sum of s equals zero to infinity of x to the s is 1 over 1 minus x. x is a little star because if you memorize that, <laughs> your life will be easier. I just want to tell you what, what things are worth putting into your brain and memorizing. So just to prove this to yourself real quick, you can prove this by multiplying both sides by 1 minus x and it will become a telescoping sum. So take the left-hand side, sum over uh, x to the s from s is 0 to infinity, multiply by 1 minus x, okay, and just write out the terms. The first term is s equals 0, so the first term is 1 minus x. Second term is s equals 1, which will give me an x times a 1 minus x. <coughs> That's x minus x squared. Okay. Had this been s equals 2, I'd get an x squared minus an x cubed. That's right here, and so on. So you see, this is called a telescoping sum because the minus x will cancel the x. The minus x squared will cancel the x squared. Okay, and you just take that on out to infinity, and you'll end up with the only term that didn't get killed was 1. Okay? So that just proved that this is true, that sum over x to the s from s equals 0 to infinity is 1 over 1 minus x. <coughs> okay. <coughs> so now we can use that uh, for, to put the partition function into a better form, right? Well, this is kind of the method we've, we've always seen happening. We write down the partition function, it's a big sum. If you can get a nice closed, call it a closed form, if you can get a nice expression for the partition function, your life is easier. So here I'll rewrite this sum from 0 to infinity of e to the something to the s as uh, 1 over 1 minus e to the minus h bar omega over tau. 
Okay, I just used this formula. Do you see how that happened? So that's it. That's the partition function of one photon mode at a single energy omega. Are there any questions about how that happened? Okay. So you see the partition function itself is independent of occupation number because we summed over occupation number, right? So that variable went away. So there's only the frequency of the photon mode, basically the energy of the photon mode and what temperature you're at. <coughs> so what I'd really like to get at physically is given that I have a particular temperature in the box, um, what for any given photon mode, how many photons should I expect to be in the mode? Okay? And that's the following question. What's the expectation value of S? Where S is the number of photons in that mode. So you know how to take expectation values. <coughs> it's a weighted average. So you're going to take the sum over the partition function, but you'll put S inside the sum. So sum over S, e to the minus S h bar omega over tau, all divided by the partition function. Okay, that's how you take the weighted averages. That'll give us the thermal <coughs> average occupancy of the mode. I'm throwing out terminal, terminology now, right? Thermal average occupancy. When you see that on your homework, this is what you're supposed to do, okay? Meaning, occupancy of the mode just means how many photons are in it. That's why we called it an occupancy. It's an average because it's a weighted average. It's the thermal average, okay? Does that make sense? Because for a particular temperature, that's the average number of photons in the mode. <coughs> so I can uh, use our usual derivative technique to take the expectation value. Okay. I could also re-manipulate this to be a, a derivative of a log, but let's let's do it this way. <coughs> and so the sum uh, of s e to the minus s y, I can use the that usual derivative sneaky trick. To, to take that sum. So if I take a derivative with respect to y, I've made a change of variable here, right? y is h bar omega over tau. So if I take a derivative with respect to y of sum over e to the minus sy, that'll pull down the s, right? So this is really the derivative of the partition function. But I know that closed form for the partition function. It was 1 over y minus e to the minus y. We just derived that. Right, that sum over x to the n is 1 over 1 minus x, right there. Now I take the derivative of that with respect to y. Do you see where I am? I'm just calculating the numerator right now. We'll put the denominator in on the next page. So derivative of this thing with respect to y. <coughs> okay, so that's a little bit complicated. I have a minus sign that needs to come down. This is a 1 over something, right? So the derivative will be minus 1 over the something squared. So the signs just canceled. Now on top, I need the derivative of, of what's inside here. So the derivative of 1 minus e to the minus y will be a, a minus cancels the minus e to the minus y. So that's, that's the answer for, excuse me, that's the answer for the numerator. <coughs> so there's, there's the top part. <coughs> I also need the partition function. We, we found that the partition function was 1 over 1 minus e to the minus y. So the total expectation value is this term divided by that term. Okay, so I have an e to the minus y, that stays there, divided by this, okay, one uh, sorry, divided by 1 minus e to the minus y squared. <coughs> the partition function will cancel out one of those powers. So all in all, the answer is expectation value of s is e to the minus y divided by 1 minus e to the minus y. 
Now, what have I done in the next step here? Y is h bar omega divided by tau. How did I get to the next step? You see what I did? Mm. <laughs> what, what did I do to get to the next step? Yeah, yeah, so here I multiply top and bottom by e to the y. Okay, so e to the y times e to the minus y is 1. Here, uh, e to the y times 1 is e to the y, then minus another 1 there. Okay, so I just did a little re manipulation. Um, <coughs> I just wanted to have only one exponent running around to make, make life a little bit easier. So we put a box around that because that's called the Planck distribution function. Okay, it's the average thermal occupancy of one photon mode. So, look at this um, numerically, mathematically, and tell me if it makes sense. What does this function do at very low temperature? Think of temperature goes to zero, and what will the occupancy look like? One. <laughs> I'm hearing zeros and ones and zeros and ones. Let's see here. So we take the temperature really small. So this would be one over small. One over small is large. E to the large uh, is big, right? So one over large is small. Okay. <laughs> so the average occupancy is small at small temperatures. Now I'll take the opposite. Let's go to large temperature. <coughs> what did I just do? Large temperature or small temperature? Thank you. Take it large. Let's try again. Right. So large temperature, one over large is small. E to the small is close to one. Okay. So close to one minus one is going to be really small. One over small is large. So I hope that we're going to do real math on the next page. Okay. But just I just want you to get a sense of it. Okay. That this this distribution function is going to make sense. At low temperature, the average occupancy will be small. At high temperature, the average occupancy will go up because as you excite this, this gas of photons, they can access those higher energy levels just due to the, to the temperature. So this doesn't work at absolute zero. <coughs> you, you worried about the singularity? Yeah. Zero. <laughs> eh, I can take a limit. I think that's the way to look at it, is to take a limit. Yeah, and then you can make it work at, at absolute zero. But, uh, but that's a good point, is that, is that oftentimes these expressions will, if you plug in zero directly, will uh, not make sense. But you can take a limit. And you see that, that in the limit, the occupancy would, would go to zero. Good point. Um, that's that's <coughs> tied into why we think you can't ever get to absolute zero. <laughs> it's um, a singularity. So where we're headed with this, okay, is that we want to be able to derive this thing. We're not quite there. I only did one photon mode. So I only looked at the average occupancy of one photon mode. But we're getting there, okay? We're going to get to this distribution function, which is intensity versus frequency. And we'll find that it's a nice smooth thing and we'll, we'll derive this, this occupancy here. So we have to, uh, we'll have to quantize the electromagnetic modes inside the box. Be a little bit careful with that. Um, if we don't take into account quantization like that, we'll get um, singularities everywhere. 
So it turns out that photon modes really are distinct modes, they're quantized, uh, otherwise we'd see singularities in these kind of functions. So the form of this function actually, okay, is related to the fact that the, the photon modes themselves will have to be quantized. <coughs> so we're, we're going to get to the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which will tell me the average energy per unit volume in the box. And I'll tell you where we're headed and then we're going to do the math. Uh, so the average energy per unit volume in the box will be proportional to temperature to the fourth. Okay, that's kind of odd. But it does make sense that as you turn up the temperature on the box, the average energy would increase. Turns out it increases the temperature to the fourth. And we'll get this Planck radiation law here, which will tell us uh, the form of this intensity versus frequency profile. That's what we're, that's where we're headed. We want to get that physics out. So here's what we know so far. We know the thermal average energy per mode. Uh, we calculated S, the average occupancy, but since the energy in the mode, okay, the energy of the mode is H per omega, if there are three photons in the mode, I say the total energy is three times H per omega, right? So here, the average energy in any given mode is the average number of photons times H per omega. Do you believe that? Okay. Why didn't I have to take an expectation value of omega? What now? Yeah, a single. We're, we're doing the physics of a single mode, so there's a single frequency. So there's no frequency to average over. So when I take the total average of this energy, <coughs> where energy was number of photons times h per omega, the only thing I need to average over is s because that is a function of temperature. Omega is not, H bar is not. So here then, that becomes H bar omega divided by e to the H bar omega over tau minus 1. And so here is, are the, the limits I was talking about. In the high temperature limit, okay, when temperature is large, H bar omega divided by tau becomes small. And physicists like to find a small parameter in Taylor expand. So I can actually do a Taylor expansion here in the high temperature limit. So e to the x will be approximately equal to 1 plus x. So in the denominator here, whereas I had e to the h bar omega over tau, I'll replace that with 1 plus h bar omega over tau. There's other factors, right, but we're dropping them to see what the basic uh, first order temperature dependence is. So the 1 and the minus 1 cancel, and then I'll get h bar omega divided by h bar omega. The tau comes up top. So altogether, the average thermal energy in the photon mode is proportional to the temperature um, in this high temperature limit. Okay. <coughs> so, here's a question. What would equipartition have told you? We did that equipartition theorem earlier in the class where I said that if you want to know what the internal energy is of something, you take the number of degrees of freedom times n tau over 2. <coughs> So when we had ideal atoms that could run in any direction, that was p squared over 2m, that was really px squared plus py squared plus pz squared over 2m, three squared terms, called three degrees of freedom. So our internal energy was three halves n tau. Here I just got a tau. So this is really, by the f partition theorem, this would be a two divided by a two. So how did the two come up? Hmm. See, I don't see how that would work because you need 
He defines in squared terms. Any, any thoughts as to where it could come from? It's not all that obvious. I'm asking you a tough question. Let's see if you can figure out where the... Okay. Aha. Okay. 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 So first of all, all right. So, <coughs> so first of all, a photon mode has an electric component and a magnetic component. Okay, that's a good place to look for the factor of two. Um, in the what I need is basically the energy to go something like e squared plus b squared. Okay, and that's basically where it's coming from. There's an e squared plus a, a b squared thing. But you could also figure it out from the fact that the <coughs> excuse me the photon mode is basically uh, a harmonic oscillator in E squared B squared. So harmonic oscillators have two squared terms in them. So I get two two degrees of freedom. Okay. So so does that make sense? Photons have a magnetic field and a and an electric field and they're perpendicular, meaning they're independent variables. Okay. Um, and basically the the two squared terms in Hamiltonian have to do with E squared plus B squared. So in fact if you knew all that and then built this up from macro partition, then you would get the right answer. Two, two degrees of freedom, uh, electric field and magnetic field divided by two gives you average energy is tau. Any questions about that? Okay. All right. So uh, the total energy is really what we'd, we'd like to know. We want the total energy in the box. This is so far only the average energy in one photon mode. So I really need to know how to count photon modes in order to get the rest of this correct. So I need to uh, remind you how electromagnetic radiation works in the cavity. Okay, I'm not going to prove this, but basically in your E&M course, you should have gone over uh, what the uh, selection rules are for an electric and magnetic field interacting with a metallic box. Okay, and you'll have these rules about how the electric field when it's parallel has to be a certain direction. You know, the perpendicular field will have certain boundary conditions on it. The Parallel electric fields have certain boundary conditions on it. This is a long, hard problem you did somewhere in your homework, I know, pre and M. Do you remember it? Kind of vaguely? Okay, all right. So use those selection rules for how the electric field interacts with the size of the, of the box. So, <coughs> so basically the, the answer is that in the X component, okay, I'll get a long function having to depend on uh, position in the X direction position in the y direction, position in the z direction. It'll also be a function of time because photon moves wiggle. Okay, that's what they do. Their electric field increases and their magnetic field and their electric field and their magnetic field. <coughs> so uh, what's important to notice here is that there's an overall time dependence which you can more or less ignore for our purposes. Sine of omega t is just an oscillate in time. Uh, the boundary conditions, okay, are such that if this is the x component of the electric field, I want to take uh, a cosine form for the x-dependence of the electric field. That'll be a cosine of nx pi x over l. The other two, the um, other uh, coordinates, y and z, will have signs associated with them. It just it goes back to these boundary conditions of an electric field hitting a metal box. And so notice that the cosine term follows the coordinate you're after. E sub x 
will have a cosine of x in it, east of y will have a cosine of y, east of z will have a cosine of z. And we want to require Maxwell's equations to be satisfied. Okay. So del dot e is zero in our case. Why is it zero? That's not quite the general form, right? Del dot e usually is equal to something. Do you remember what the something is? Hmm. Hmm. Ah, there's a row. Okay, and row is physically charge density. Okay, so I'm assuming that I have a box that has no excess charge density. Okay. All right. So no excess charge density anywhere means that del dot e will be zero according to Maxwell's equation. So that del dot e, if I factor all that out, means dex by dx plus dey by dy plus dez by dz. All of that together is zero. So what I need to know how to take is since e sub x, for example, let's do this term first. Since e sub x, its x dependence is here with a cosine of x, what I really need to know is what's d by dx of cosine x. d by dx of cosine x will be nx pi over l sine nx pi x over l. That's the important bit to get out. So dx by dx of e sub x is whatever factors were in front. There was sort of an overall um, amplitude. And then here's the nx pi over l times everything that's left over. Everything that's left over is sine. Sine of nx pi x over l, sine of ny pi y over l, and so on. Okay, so I just took that derivative. Now I'm going to add up the terms, okay, and see what equals uh, zero. <coughs> so what, what's, okay, th this was a bit of a quick step here. Uh, we calculated d by dx of e sub x. If I did this for the y component, what would the answer be? The y component, so imagine taking this derivative, there's your y component. For the y component, you'll get d by dy of the y part, which was a cosine. Now the cosine will turn into a sine. So the y component will look just like this, okay? Except where I had an n sub x, I will have an n sub y where those are numbers that I use to characterize <coughs> other nodes during the system. So really, when I take this, this characterization, n sub x, n sub y, and n sub z, right, which is telling me something about the number of nodes in each direction, I can take that as a vector. n sub x, n sub y, n sub z, three, three numbers, I can treat it as a vector. And then what I really want is e naught dotted into that n vector is zero. That's the actual condition. You probably actually did that in your e and m class. E dot uh, n will be zero. That's the important bit. So uh, radiation of the cavity, uh, e dot e dot n, means that uh, the overall electric field, if I, if I know these nx, ny, and z numbers, that means that the actual electric field is perpendicular to that, um, is perpendicular to that uh, vector, okay? So for any given vector n, there are two ways to choose e, because I'm working in three dimensions. If I was working in four dimensions, there would be three ways to choose e. So we're in three dimensions, three-dimensional box. If the n vector is up, then there are two different ways to choose which way e can point. It's got to be perpendicular, so it could be this way or it could be the other direction. So two ways. Remember that factor of two, okay? I just want you to know that it's going to come up in our counting as far as the number of modes. So we'll count as two separate modes. That's all I want to, uh, to get across there. So photons in a box. 
satisfy uh, the wave equation, photons satisfy the wave equation, where, for example, d squared by dt squared of the electric field is c squared del squared e, where c is the speed of light. Okay. <coughs> and putting all that together, let me take the del squared and break it up into components, that'll be d squared by dx squared plus d squared by dy squared plus d squared by dz squared okay, times the electric field. And if d sub x, for example, okay, was all these sign terms, but there's the cosine in the middle, d squared by dx squared, uh, I need to worry about now uh, the x dependence, basically. Pull out the x dependence. d squared by the x squared of e sub x, for example. Okay. I'll pull out this x here. So I take the derivative of the x. I'm sorry, derivative of the cosine of x. Then I'll pull out an n pi over l, but I'll be left with a sign. I'm just pulling out the actual, um, what's left over here. And uh, that'll end up being, where are we? <coughs> yeah. So g squared by dx squared sine omega t times cosine kx. Um, let's come back to the cosine. Yeah. Sorry. That's a cosine. What happens when I take two derivatives of a cosine? I get back to cosine. Okay, with a minus sign. So here's a minus sign. Change that sine of kx on both sides into a cosine. Because the e to that is cosine x. Sorry about that. Cosine there, cosine there. Okay. <coughs> so all I'm saying is that this form that we wrote down really does satisfy the wave equation. Okay. And if I did the components individually, <coughs> I would come up with the following: that basically c squared here, okay, the derivative squared. Whenever I take that del squared, is going to pull out a k squared. K is whatever's in here in x pi over l. So here it is. Here's k squared, pi squared times n squared divided by l squared. You see how that happens? Okay, that's just this side, c squared del squared, pulls all that out. And then <coughs> the right-hand side here, omega squared, has to do with the time dependence. If I took the time dependence, d squared by dt squared of sine omega t, I'd get uh, minus omega squared times sine of omega t. So there's, there's that. So here's the simplified form of the wave equation, where I've canceled out all the sines and cosines that are the same for every term. Any questions about that? Okay. <coughs> so, satisfies the wave equation, that's all we did. We said that that's true, photons in a box. And <coughs> if omega squared then is this formula, if I set down the, uh, use, use these nx and y and nz as the components of a vector, Right? This here, nx squared plus ny squared plus nz squared, is n squared, the magnitude of that vector, squared. Okay? So when I take the square root of both sides, I have a simple formula now. Omega sub n is pi n c over l. And we know how to count those. See what happened? It's sort of something very complicated, and I got a nice slick formula. Omega sub n is pi n c over l. And I think, can we finish this today, I hope? Okay. <coughs> we have like 
Whoa, we have about eight pages left. We are not going to finish that today. Um, let me go one more minute, okay? Uh, so here we go. We have this to count. That's a count modes in a box. The total energy is if I sum up the modes, right? Sum up for all the modes of their um, expectation values of the energies. The two, right? The two came from the two polarization factors. For every uh, energy, there were two directions that the uh, electric field could be pointing into that photon. So there's your factor of two. Now I'm going to sum over nx, ny, and nz times the expectation value of e sub n. And the expectation value of e sub n, we already calculated, was h bar omega over e to the h bar omega over tau minus one. So I need to know how to sum that. Okay? That's, that's the main uh, trick of this. So we have to convert the sum to an integral. And that's okay because we're looking at the statistical mechanics of large things. Okay, we'll take the, the box to be large. We'll have uh, large numbers coming up at the end of the day. Well, these, these differences between the little levels will become small as I take the system size large. So here's what we're going to do is convert the sum to an integral, okay, where sum over n sub x, n sub y, n sub z ends up being related to take the integral of dnx, dny, and dnz. The one-eighth comes from the fact that I can only sum over positive numbers. If I take this integral over all space, there's only one-eighth of space that was all positive coordinates. Okay, so that's what that's for. And then I can convert the, the integral to d cubed n, where I'm treating n as a vector now. And if you remember how to take integrals in 3D, integrate d cubed r, is integrate 4 pi r squared dr, where r runs from 0 to infinity. That's just a conversion of <coughs> volume integral. But notice here that 4 pi r squared is the surface area of a sphere. So what you're doing here physically is you'll take the surface area of a sphere, dr, 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 and make the surface of the sphere larger and larger. And that's how you're going to integrate overall space when you convert from uh, Cartesian coordinates to spherical coordinates. So, okay, all in all, at the end of the day, the sum over the end is one-eighth integrate from zero to infinity, four pi n squared dn. Took the sum to an integral, then I converted into spherical coordinates. That's okay as long as I'm going to take the box size to infinity at the end of the day. Um, we are out of time. So we'll pick up here on Wednesday. See you Wednesday.